0: All right, where are my teachers? All you teachers, finally back at work. Yes. Look, you know what? Um, We've got to be nice to you, because I actually reckon teachers have the hardest job. They do. You really do. I'm not just joking. I'm not being sarcastic. You have the hardest job, because Karen, my wife, used to teach primary school, and um, I remember how hard she worked. And one of the hardest times of the year, or twice a year probably, is when you have to write reports, right, teachers? Any of you like writing reports? It is horrible isn't it. How <laughs> I imagine because you can't really say what you really, think about some of these kids. Isn't that right? Like you, you can't, so some students deserve, bad comments on their reports, so like that. You can't write that. You want to write that. And all you teachers know, there are, there are kids in your class that really should deserve reports like that. But you know you probably get fired if you did something like that. So in addition to having to write tedious report after report, teachers, you guys, have to come up with creative ways, don't you, to tell the parents stuff about their kids without actually saying it directly. So we're going to have an activity. We'll do this together. Um, Try and figure out from these reports or these things that the teachers wrote what the teachers really mean. So have a look at this one. A B has an active imagination and enjoys having a lot of creative outlet. What is the teacher really saying? Anyone want to have a hazard a guess? Bad maths. Sorry, bad at maths. maths. I think it's a bit stronger than that to be honest. <laughs> yeah, t- this student he just cannot concentrate in class ever. Yeah, that's for, yeah, T- kid may have ADHD. All right. How about this one? Try this one. CD contributes well in discussions and is learning to share their enthusiasm with quieter members of the class. That's right. CD cannot shut up. You've got to be a good parent to read between the lines, ain't you? None of my kids have ever gone this. Okay. <laughs> EF has great potential. You know that. A kid with great potential is like a house with great potential on the market. (laughs) You know what real estate agents are really saying, right? EF has great potential and is growing in motivation and learning. What's the teacher really saying? (laughs) This student is lazy as anything, right? So there you go. They're just some examples. I can imagine teachers having to do that again and again. Must be the hardest job in the world. All right. Serious note, serious note. Um, Revelation. Which, by the way, we're actually going to do the whole book of Revelation later in the year. So if, if you're one of those people like Lisa, like, oh, can we do Revelation? Finally, we caved in. Um, we're going to do Revelation through all one to chapters, chapters 1 to 22 at the end of the year. But um, the section we're just going to focus on is really part of a section in chapters 2 and 3 where you can pretty much say that Jesus has been writing His report cards. All right? He's been writing His report on his churches. So, between chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters written by Jesus to seven churches. Now, each of these churches really did exist. They all existed in what was called Asia Minor then, which is actually modern Turkey. But we know from the Bible, and particularly from Revelation, that the number seven is symbolic. It's symbolic of completeness. So, while these are real churches in modern Turkey or ancient Asia Minor, these seven churches actually represent all churches, if you know what I mean, right? All churches then and throughout history and all churches now. Of these seven churches, we don't have time to read all of them. Uh, let me just cut to the, the results. Basically, two get an A, three get a B, and two get a C, all right? So two of these churches get an A. And there's nothing bad said about them, only good things. Three of them get a B, some good, some bad comments. Two of them get a C, or if you're more harsh, an F, Okay, because nothing good is said about them. And the one that we just read, Laodicea, in the end of chapter 3, guess what? It is one of the sea churches. Jesus has only words of rebuke for this church. Now, today on Vision Sunday, I want to use this letter to this church for us to kind of hold up a mirror to ourselves at Southwest. Not because the other churches and what he says, they aren't relevant to us, or even in some cases, maybe more relevant to us. But it's actually helpful to see what he says to this church, because I believe what he says to this church is not just in some way a rebuke to us. It's actually, I think, a rebuke to all of our churches in our part of the world. And you'll see why in a moment. And we want to be looking at it on Vision Sunday to think about, well, what might Jesus be saying to Southwest Evangelical Church this week? What might the the things that we need to change be? So we're going to do that. So why don't we pray and then we'll get into it. Father, we pray that you would give us real humility It's easy when we hear words that we think may be directed against us, even when it's from you, to get defensive or to get dismissive, or even just to get really discouraged and hopeless. Father, we pray that none of that would happen today. Help us to humbly cast ourselves under your watchful eye to know why you speak these words that may be rebuking to us. Ultimately, Father, that by your Spirit, you might give us hearts that seek and long after The kind of change and the kind of vision that you want to give us, not just in this coming year, but for the years to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, yeah, points on your bulletins, in your bulletins. We're going to first look at Jesus' report card for Laodicea, then we're going to turn the attention on maybe what he's saying to us as Sweck before tying it all up. Now, before we do, though, uh, I want you to note something that there are strong words of rebuke. In Revelation 3, in fact, in these two chapters, uh, for at least five of the seven churches. And then there are going to be some words of rebuke that you're going to see, oh, maybe they apply to us. And that's uncomfortable, isn't it, to, to feel rebuked? We need to remember, therefore, why Jesus says what He says. So have a look. I hope you have your Bibles open in that chapter we read, because it's really important that you keep it open. We're going to park there for the rest of the sermon. Look at verse 19. Look, what, look why, why Jesus speaks these words. 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I remember uh, we've been looking at head, heart, hands on the topic of community, if you're with us the last three weeks, and we keep coming back to this idea that the community is important. Right? The community is the church. The church is not the building. The church is not the institution. The church is the people, the community. It's important to Jesus because Jesus loves His church. He loves His people. And we know He loves His people because the price He paid to have them, to rescue them, to rescue us, was with His own life. Yeah, That's how precious we are to Him. Now, by, by the way, just as an aside, if, um, if you're not a regular at our church, especially if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, probably going to be... I mean, today is a really little bit of housekeeping, right? So there's going to be stuff that you're going to be like, oh, I don't really get. Um, and that's okay. Right? Just listen in, and see what we as a church um, like to begin our year thinking about. But I want to tell you that even if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're a visitor, what I'm going to say here is relevant to you. That is, Jesus loves you. Right? Jesus loves you. And when He died on the cross, He died... So that you could have a relationship with Him. So that your sins can be forgiven. So that you can also become one of His people. And that's maybe the most important thing you need to hear today if you're not a regular, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Now, of course, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still investigating. I'm not sure where I'm at. Well, I'd like to invite you to come back. The next week and the three to two weeks after that, the next three weeks are going to be really important. Because we're going to be uh, having a look at three big questions questions that not only uh, you might have, questions that our friends and family who don't yet know Jesus might have, and they're going to be really great weeks for you to come back and hear more. But I just want to put that out there. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if you're at this moment still investigating, Jesus wants to say to you, aside from everything else, He's going to say to our, us as a church, He loves you and He wants a relationship with you. All right. Coming back though, it's because Jesus loves His church and because they're so precious to Him that like a good parent, right, he's going to want to, at times, rebuke and discipline. Um, Karen and I are parents of four kids, and I reckon if we're lucky, we get it right 50% of the time when it comes to discipline. We do love our kids, but we don't get it right a lot of the times. Well, Jesus gets it right 100% of the time. So you know, when He disciplines and He rebukes, it's never out of, you know, a sudden flash of anger or personal hurt or indignation. He does it because he loves us. He does it so that, right, that famous bit, I I stand at the door and knock. That passage, by the way, is often taken out of context. He's actually talking to his people. It's not an invitation primarily to people outside. He's talking to his people, his church, saying, I want to have close, intimate fellowship with you. I want to eat with you. But what you're doing now, if you're not listening to my rebuke, is keeping me on the outside. So let me in. So the reason why he's rebuking his church and the reason why he always, always the reason why he might rebuke us is so that he can become more intimate with us, so that we can have greater joy in fellowship with him. Okay, so that's the background. Keep that in mind. Words of rebuke, never easy to hear, but when we hear them from Jesus, know how much he loves us. Okay, let's go. Point one, uh, verse 14. Look what he says. This is their report card. To the angel of the church in Laodicea right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't know if you know um, my parents' generation, being from a Chinese background they like drinking warm water. Do you know people like that? Like, even when it's like today hot or hotter, you're like, hey, you want a cold glass of water? They go, no, give me warm water. Sorry, that was a bad accent. (laughs) Uh, I've been watching too much Russell Peters. Um, Be a man, give me warm water. Um, Anyway, give me warm water. And it's just like, why? Warm? Gross. But they actually think warm water is good. Something about your body and temperature and yin-yang. I don't know. Um, Anyway... If you think warm water is good, in case you're one of the weird ones out there, all right, here in Revelation 3, warm water is not good. I hope you pick that up. It's not good. Okay, now, I used to think that what Jesus meant here is that hot water is good, cold water is bad, because hot is a symbol of what? You know, full on, cold is the symbol of, you know, completely out, right, or being cold in your heart, and uh, Jesus is saying, well, you're kind of neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, you're somewhere in the middle, but I wish you were either all in or all out, and that's what lukewarm means, you're neither hot nor cold, you're neither passionate for Jesus nor cold about Jesus. Now, I wonder if that's what you think it means, what I used to think, and then you look closely and you think, actually, no, that can't make sense, because verse 15, he says, I wish you were hot or cold. Jesus actually wants them to be either hot or cold. It seems like both hot and cold are good things. Lukewarm is the bad thing. So, what is? How do we make sense of it? Well, helps to know a little bit about history or archaeology. You see, they, they, there is a city. There was a city in Laodicea, and we know that it was a thriving and wealthy city in Asia Minor. We also know from archaeology and from ancient sources that Laodicea, guess what, was famous for having bad drinking water. Bad drinking water. I don't know if you've ever gone to a place like China. And tried their drinking water. Well, their tap water. A few years ago, I got the privilege of traveling to China on a World Vision sort of thing. And um, Tim Costello, the then head of World Vision. I know, it sounds like I'm name dropping. Um, I am. Tim Costello was uh, traveling with me. and um, No, I was traveling with Tim. And, uh, and he had never been to China before. And so on day one of our trip, he not only brushes his teeth with tap water, he takes drinks. <laughs> from the tap. And so you can imagine for the next three or four days, he's having some serious problems (laughs) because the tap water in places like China is just not drinkable. Well, Laodicea was known for not only undrinkable water because of hygiene, it actually had this icky, lukewarm and funny taste, okay? It was just not a palatable water. Um, And and, and we, we also know that Laodicea um, has to have its water shipped in or aqueducted in. Um, unlike the north of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis and Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs. So you know those places in like North Island of New Zealand, Rotorua, right? You could take a dip in hot springs and that was what it's famous for. Um, well, Laodicea had that in the north, but in the west it had a city called Colossi, which was famous for its cold, refreshing Mount Franklin-like drinking water. Alright, so you got hot water to the north, which was nice for a bath, cold water to the west, which is great for a drink, and then you've got Laodicea, which didn't have its own water source, had to have water shipped in, so whichever way it came from, by the time it reached Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold, it was good for nothing. And on top of that, it was not very drinkable, it was kind of gross and dirty, alright, so that's the background. That's why I kind of say, if you look closely, Jesus is not saying, you know, hot is good, cold is bad, I wish you would just choose. No, He's saying, hot is good for certain purposes, have a nice bath. Cold is good too, because it's refreshing, it's nice, like Colossae, right? And you are neither. You're just not drinkable. So what is He saying here to His people, to His ancient church? Well, it's not very nice, is it? It's a strong word of rebuke. He's saying, you're seriously lacking you're not the kind of church that I want you to be. Your deeds, and he's pointing out his deeds, were not useful either being hot, which would have been useful, or cold, which would have been useful too. You're like pukey, warm, undrinkable water that I want to spit out. Now, if you keep looking onwards, you also realize it's not just that Jesus is picking on their deeds and what they lack. It's also the fact that they had a problem, clearly, but they weren't humble enough to recognize it. And that may be actually the core reason why he finds them lukewarm and pukey and disgusting in their deeds. Look at verse 17. This is really the core of their problem. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The core of what Jesus has against them is not just that they're lacking, but they think they're okay. They're self-sufficient. They're self-reliant. They don't think they need to change. They don't think they really need Jesus to supply what they think was their sufficiency and their wealth. And that's really why I wanted us to take a notice of this church, as a, you know, in addition to all the other churches, but this one in particular. Because let's be honest, if you're a church like ours in Australia, in what we would call the West, this is basically our biggest problem, isn't it? That we actually think we're okay. And we don't compare ourselves with the church of the Bible. We don't look through the book of Acts and think, wow. Look at those churches. Look how far we fall short. We don't even have eyes enough to see not just the book of Acts in the Bible, but throughout history. And look at the times when God's church has been the kind of church it should be. And we certainly don't take a look outside of our Western world enough to all the churches outside of the global West and compare ourselves to them. No, no, we look around us and we think, okay, we're not, you know, mega church, but we're doing okay. And we become so self-sufficient. Like a church like ours, again, just a medium-sized church in Australia. But look, we have somewhere to meet, two locations. We, we don't own any of them, but we have enough money to pay to meet at these two locations. That's something. Um, we have a number of pastors, elders, some really great leaders to lead us. Um, recently at Kingsgrove, we put in air conditioning, you know, we have money to put in air conditioning. That's pretty good. Some people here may not even have aircon at home. We're doing okay. And so we settle. And we don't think that we desperately need Jesus. You see, we can become lukewarm so easily, self-satisfied, self-sufficient, when in reality, Jesus wants us to have a look at ourselves and say, hey, you know what? You need me more than you possibly can imagine. So on to my second point. I do wonder what Jesus would say about us as a church at the beginning of this year. Now, 10 years ago, when we uh, started church, firstly out at Kingsgrove, before we came up with like a, a, a neat vision statement um, about, you know, making, maturing, multiplying, mobilizing disciples, we, before we came up with that, we actually had four core values. We thought, well, what's kind of the DNA of our church? What four things we really want to be about, uniquely about, um, that we value? And we came up with these four things, worship, word, community, mission. All right, worship, word, that's God's word, community, and mission. So I started thinking, if we could describe a modern Laodicean church, a lukewarm, self-confident, self-sufficient church, and I could describe them along these four lines, since they happen to be four core values um, of ours, what would it look like? What would be a lukewarm worship church look like? What would be a lukewarm word church, community church, mission church look like? So I, I came up with a list, and under each one, I came up with five characteristics. Now, you've got to know, I wasn't thinking, firstly, about our church. There's going to be points where we're going to be like, oh, yeah, we're like that. Other points are going to be like, no, I think we're not quite like that. The point isn't, at this point, compare with our church. I just want to hold up a possible ID of what a lukewarm modern church might look like using the four core values that we should be fairly familiar with. Okay, you kind of get where I'm going? All right. So let's have a look at that. Worship. What would a lukewarm church be like when it comes to worship? Worship happens in lukewarm churches. It does. Right? It's not like worship, word, community, mission don't happen at all. They do happen. But this is maybe what it would look like. So have a look at number one. In a lukewarm church, good worship is pretty much equated with good music. In a lukewarm church, rituals, depending on the kind of church you come from, either really elaborate rituals or emotional highs have replaced a hunger to really encounter God. Or you go to a church like that and you don't even know the difference. You feel like if the emotions are high and the rituals have been good and mysterious and meaningful and transcendent, I've encountered God. The two are kind of equated. Thirdly, worship is what the person up front does more than what we all do. It's pretty much, church is more like a, a stage with an audience. In a lukewarm church, rehearsal and practice is far more important than prayer when it comes to worship. In a lukewarm church, Sunday worship doesn't overflow into seven days a week, 24 hours a day, worship during the week. Now, I want you to notice that actually you could take these... See, when you look at this list, right, you could have a church that is mega church, couldn't you? You could have a church that everyone sings the praises about, wow, you go to that church, the worship is just boo. and it could still be lukewarm, yeah? You could have a church that really meets in a home. Maybe they even sing to a Spotify track. <laughs> Don't have a live band. It's just a family church and yet not be like that. Do you see, this has nothing to do with how we judge church. But perhaps if we looked at what Jesus would see as good worship, or lukewarm worship, we'd actually start judging things differently. Okay, so that's worship. You can apply that across the other ones too. Let's have a look at Word. Um, A lukewarm church, when it comes to God's Word, sees the sermon as primarily something you enjoy, or critique, or a little bit of both. Right? In a lukewarm church, after a sermon, and someone goes, how was the sermon? What did you think? Oh, I enjoyed it. Or, yeah, I think there were some problems with the introduction. It was kind of not very true what he said about teachers. I don't know. Okay? It's primarily something you enjoy or critique. In a lukewarm church, the teaching and speaking of God's Word is done only by its pastors and leaders. Now, you might be thinking, eh, yeah, isn't that... Well, yeah, I mean, there's a role for pastors and leaders, but the Bible actually tells us in somewhere like Colossians chapter 3, we're to teach and admonish one another. And before that, it says, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, right? If a church is only being taught, the word of God is only happening amongst us through the leadership, then it's something lacking. And in a lukewarm church, it pretty much is only done by the pastors and teachers, In a lukewarm church, preachers and teachers of the Bible primarily rely on their abilities rather than prayer. So you get really well-trained pastors being through the good Bible colleges, know their Greek and or Hebrew. Um, They can, you know, take a part of passage, write a Bible study. They could do a talk. It's all really quite, they're quite able, they're quite competent. But not much praying really happens. Not much reliance and confidence in the power of prayer and actually in some ways in the weakness of their own abilities. So that would be a lukewarm church. Uh, Number four, reading and studying the Bible. Well, it's something we do on Sundays, but it's not going to seep into every household every day. That's a lukewarm church when it comes to the Word. And lukewarm church, we are good hearers of the Word, but not good doers of the Word. All right? Again, you could take a pretty thriving, successful church, with a great preaching and teaching ministry, some of the best preachers in the world possibly, and it could still be a lukewarm church, couldn't it? That's the scary thing. Okay, how about the community? When it comes to community, in a lukewarm church, cliques abound, and they're formed based on age, background, common interest, but not everyone is included, and it gets hard to crack into or break into some of these cliques. In a lukewarm church, joining is easy. Front doors are wide open, very welcoming. But leaving is easy as well. Right? There's no commitment to membership. There's no, you know, stick with us through thick and thin. There's no, 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 come as you are, leave if you want. In a lukewarm church, number three, a minority does the majority of the serving and caring at church. Or the twenty eighty rule, sometimes you hear 20% does 80% of the ministries. Or you think, caring and ministry, that's for the leaders of the church. The pastors are the ones who do pastoral care. And that's pretty much it. That's a lukewarm church. Number four, church community doesn't reflect the diversity of the community outside of the church. Number five, sacrificial acts of hospitality and generosity are rare. Not that they don't happen right? But when they do happen, they may not be really, really sacrificial. And to sacrifice means it hurts, but also that they're rare. It's the Every so often you might hear of a real sacrificial act by one person or two people, but it's not something that's just common. Like, you know, the early church, right, where they sold everything and put all their money and said, here, the apostles take it, give it to anyone who has needs. You know, that was sacrificial acts that were common. Well, In a lukewarm church, they're very, very rare. Last of all, mission or evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus. In a lukewarm church, it's not like mission doesn't happen. They even send missionaries. They may send lots of missionaries. They have maybe lots and lots of invitation month type things that are fresh and all that kind of stuff. But look at number one. In a lukewarm church without the evangelistic programs, there would be virtually no personal evangelism. Number two, in a lukewarm church, local and global mission is driven by the enthusiasm of a few rather than the efforts of the whole. There's going to be some who are just always cracking on about evangelism and, you know, share the gospel, and there's going to be the mission team who does it, but not necessarily the whole church, yeah? In a lukewarm church, number three, gospel words are not accompanied by gospel deeds. You might have your two ways to live, bridge to life, three circles. I don't know what outline you use, but um, if you ask their friends, Do you see gospel lives? Does that influence you? As much as the confidence that they have in their outlines, you may not see that, okay? Um, Number four, when it comes to overseas missionaries, a church supports them, sends them, but does not treat them as an extension of its own mission. They're just kind of there, and we send money to them, and we send prayer to them, and that's it, okay? And number five, a church wants to hold on to its best people and resources, rather than release them for kingdom growth in a lukewarm church okay now again i've kind of done this not as a this is sweat i hope you haven't seen that but just as a let's take our core values and let's try and imagine what a lukewarm church self-sufficient church that feels like they're doing okay characteristics of a lot of our churches in the west what might it look like according to these four core values when you look at it I wonder what you see when it comes to now looking at us as a church. I mean, probably like me, my first impression was, okay, we're not an A church. We'd be at least a B minus, possibly a B at some points, And especially when you compare ourselves with the churches around us, all right? I mean, okay, we, we may not be like that church, a really successful church over there. But, you know, compared with some other churches, we're doing okay. Now, if we did that, that would be our... A huge error wouldn't it that would actually make us more laodicean than we think once we start looking sideways compare whether we think we're doing better than some churches or worse than some churches we're only looking sideways that is actually the laodicean problem because that's the thing that feeds into self-sufficiency because when you start looking sideways you're always going to find churches that are not that is that are worse than you and so it's so easy to say okay you know there might be things we need to change so that we can be a little bit more like the good churches, the best churches, the A churches, but at least we're not doing too badly compared with the C churches. So we can just be comfortable on those. Do you see what I mean? Once you start looking sideways, your bar is set that forces you pretty much to say, at least on a lot of points, we're doing okay. We don't really need radical change. We just need to tweak here and here and there. Do you see what I mean? What we don't do, what we're not become passionate about, is having a look at what kind of church does Jesus want? What brings him the glory? And that leads to my final point. Because our theme and our vision for 2020 is originally I was going to come into this um, vision Sunday sermon and think, oh, I'll make it a Sunday sermon about our four core values. We haven't talked about them for a while. let's do that. But actually our theme and our vision sermon today, our, and our theme for the year is actually going to be about something else. It's about renewal. It's about revival. Have you heard those words before, renewal and revival? You might be thinking, are they the same? Are they different? Sometimes they're used interchangeably. Let me try and uh, tell you what the difference is. They're really two sides of the same coin. Renewal is what God does in His people. Revival is when that something He does in His people overflows and impacts everyone else around them. Okay? Renewal and revival, two sides of the same coin. What I'm saying is this, if you look at, again, not looking sideways, you look at what kind of a church does Jesus want for His people? What kind of a church do we read about in the book of Acts? I hope you see that tweaking little bits here and there and thinking we're okay on these other areas, that's just not going to cut it. Because what we need, if we have a real view of ourselves, a humble view of ourselves, you'll see that what we need is not just trickles of God's power to change us. What we need is an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And by we, we don't just mean swag. I think we actually got to see it's, it's we in the West. We churches in the Christian global West. And the reason why we need an outpouring as opposed to just trickles isn't just because it's a silver bullet solution. No, no, it's not that like that at all. It's because when you look historically at church history, you, you may not know this, and it may be a surprise to you. You might be thinking, for the last two thousand years, church growth has been kind of like this on a graph. Okay, I mean there'd be a little bit of bumps, but it's sort of like, maybe it's a bit like the, the stock market. It's generally gone up. Okay, but actually, that's not really the way that church history has progressed for the last two thousand years. Church history churches haven't grown the gospel hasn't grown through constant slow and steady rise in general that's not been the case but if you look at history it usually is this it's periods of decline and the decline might be for a while right until it gets pretty low and then you get boom sudden accelerations that's what you get so to be more like that and then up and then that and then up and then that and then up okay that's really been church history and those sudden accelerations are what we call sudden outpourings of the Spirit of God. Huge outpourings. And it's renewal, it's revival. And so you look through history and you realize well, it's actually that kind of stuff that's, that really is what Pentecost was all about. Acts chapter 2, when God poured out his Holy Spirit, the first great outpouring. That was a sudden acceleration. Jesus didn't just say to the 11 disciples, you know, you're just going to slowly understand what's going to happen. You're going to suddenly come out of the upper rooms. You're going to preach the gospel just to a few people, and then it'll slowly get momentum. Maybe in 50, 80 years, you might have some churches outside of, you know, Jerusalem. No, no, it's not like that, was it? The Spirit was poured out, flooded out, and boom, all of a sudden the church grew. These 11, 12, suddenly changed the world, okay? That was Pentecost, that was revival. But you also know revival was responsible for what we call the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, right? Luther, Calvin, and the whole change that that brought to Europe and all around the world were Protestants because of revival. Revival was responsible um, for the movement of the center of Christianity away from where it started, obviously the Middle East and Mediterranean in Europe, to being centered around the UK and the U.S., how did that happen? How did the UK and the US become centers of Christianity between the 17th and the 20th century? It's because of revivals. That's why. And through that came to Australia as well, by the way. But you'll also know that that's not where the center of Christianity is anymore, is it? It's not the UK and US anymore. Do you know where the center of Christianity has shifted to in the 21st century, now century? It's Asia. It's Africa. It's South America. Places like Korea, China, right? Experiencing revivals. The African church, the East African revival, 100 years ago, the South American revival, what's going on in places like Brazil over the last 20, 30 years is revival proportions. Whole, Brazil is now the second largest missionary sending force in the world. Right? It's because of revival. This is what's going on in the world. And, and when revival comes... And God chooses to pour out His Spirit at this particular age. It doesn't just bring conversions. That's the key to revival. It's part of the key of revival. But it also impacts society. I don't have time to go through statistics of what happens when they've done studies of places that have experienced revival and what happens to crime rates. It goes down. There are 19th century revivals where whole towns... The, the, the taverns all shut. There was one city where the judges closed all their courts because there were no cases that were coming anymore. I mean, it was that kind of impact. The 1959 Billy Graham crusade in Australia, was probably the closest thing to a national revival we've experienced. In 59, they did studies. In the next few years, the crime rates did go down and, you know, births out of wedlocks went down and, you know, families actually were strengthened. And all those kind of societal... Impact comes as a result of revival as well. This is what happens. This is what we need, isn't it? I want to show you a quote from um, one of the uh, pastors who, who was famous a pastor during the revival of the 18th century in America. His name is Jonathan Edwards, and I want you to kind of, I want to read this slowly so you get a sense of, at least a sense of what was going on. This is sort of his account of what it was like in those precious years when revival started sweeping through America. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears, While the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Now now you read something like this, and then you take our four core values. Worship, word, community, and mission. Now do you see what it can be, right? Now do you see what a church can be? under the powerful influence of God's spirit of revival. By the way, you could do that with the church in Acts as well, but I thought I'd choose a a more recent non-biblical example. But you can see that worship, word, community, and mission don't just take little changes. Everything is transformed. It becomes suddenly this beautiful picture of a church alive with worship, word, community, and mission. It's no longer the, the church that is Laodicean and just somewhere in the middle and... Lukewarm and self sufficient. And this year, that's why we want to make renewal and revival something we aim for. Well, we can't really aim for it because it's God's work, but something that we seek Him for. And it begins with learning more about it. Some of you here, maybe this is the first time you've even read an account of revival. You didn't know that revival is the way that God has historically brought about change and growth in the gospel. You're not aware that all around the world, just not in the West, you know, places like Brazil and other places are experiencing massive revival and we're missing out. But I hope not just learn about it, that you become hungry for it. Hungry in your own life because look, we're talking about church needing renewal, but don't you long to be the kind of Christian that is a part of that kind of church? Yeah? Hungry for God's Word? So intimate with God in worship? moved to tears so often, whether it's because you're weeping for your sin or just the joy of being saved or just that you're distressed because people around you aren't saved? Don't you want that for yourself? Don't you see that is the kind of life that Jesus wants us to have? Aren't you hungry for personal renewal? And aren't you hungry that as a church and as a nation which is experiencing drought, physical drought, needs even more? Then physical relief from drought, spiritual relief. Only revival can bring that about. And so that's why, friends, I want to just say how important March the 7th is, right? It's not just that we've decided we can't do a weekend away, and so we're just going to cut it down to one day and we're just going to put it on. No, we've actually set March the 7th as our one day away to think about revival and renewal specifically, And so that's why if you have plans on March 7, cancel it and come along. It's just one day, but it'll be such a key day for us in the life of our church. All of our services across two language groups, we're gathering together to think about, learn about, pray for, yearn for revival and renewal. And you know what? We're so blessed to have Steve Chong come and speak, not just because he's an internationally wanted speaker and he's a great guy and, you know, a friend and someone's relatives here, but... um, It's because in the last almost two years, where God has led Steve and Naomi and some of the people in the Global Rise team is to places of revival. They're about to go again, and Anthony Allingham is going to go as well in a week or so's time, to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, where some of that revival has been happening for the last 20 years, unbeknownst to me until recently. And here's the thing about revival. Don't you want, in a time of anxiety about coronavirus and really bad virus spreading, there's actually good things that can spread like a virus. <laughs> I know, that's probably inappropriate. Um, anyway, too soon, too soon. Um, but actually, this is also how historically revivals happen. Now, sometimes it's lots of pockets everywhere all at the same time, mostly It's come as an epicenter. There's a ground zero of revival as well. The Korean revivals were like that. Started off as one fellowship in Pyongyang and then all of a sudden just kind of spread. And and when revival hits a new church, it's because someone came to a revival meeting at a former church that had it and then took it to a new place and then that spread. And then it, it is a little bit like a virus. I know it's too soon, but that's all right. And so. You know, again, we can't control what God does, but we can put ourselves in the line of fire, (laughs) right? And what we want to be doing, getting Steve and Naomi to come and speak, is that they've been to those places. Just before they come and speak to us on March the 7th, they will have just gone to Brazil. And that's why when this Brazil thing was happening and they were planning trips, I said to Sharon and Anthony, I said, you guys have to go. I wish I could go, but I can't. You go instead, all right? Because I'm hoping that they go and come back and something is caught and something is spread. Renewal day is so important, okay? I can't stress enough how much, if you long for this kind of stuff for yourself, for our church, March the 7th, make it a goal to come. It's relatively much cheaper than going away for a weekend. There's a kids program. It's going to be fantastic. Dom, will you have a computer? You can actually register today. Yeah, let's do it, all right? Because next week's the last week. All right. Let me finish. But that's just one day. What we really need is a real posture and a hunger for God to do what none of us have really experienced. But if you read enough of history, you'll know that He does it, and He does it frequently, and He does it at times like in our country where we feel like the decline. Have you felt that? Religion, Christianity is really hitting almost rock bottom in terms of decline hostility against the gospel, right? Churches, growth happens, but it's very, our, our church, you know, if we see six people come to know Christ during the year, we're really, really happy. And that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty, that's actually probably above average, right? We want to see 60, 600 people come to know Jesus in a year. Right? We are poised for God to do something big. Um, let me show you a quote about prayer when it comes to revival, and I'll finish with this. Um, the famous British pastor and uh, preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way, he, this guy, he was like a celebrity in his day. His church was thousands big. He had the mega church. And yet, he looked at his church, and he saw a lot of religion and not much renewal. He saw a mega church that were there to hear him preach, and yet he still longed for what we're talking about today. So this is what he says. He says, are you really concerned about our present position? Are you desperately concerned about it? Are you praying about it? Do you ever pray for the power of God in the church today? Or are you just content to hear about the various church activities and say, oh, it's all right, the word is going on? Here is the vital question. Have you seen the desperate need of prayer, the prayer of the whole church I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival, perhaps meeting in one another's homes, perhaps meeting in groups among friends, perhaps meeting together in churches, meeting anywhere you like, and praying with urgency and concentration for a shedding forth of the power of God, such as He shed forth 100 and 200 years ago, and in every other period of revival, and of reawakening. There is no hope until we do, but the moment we do, Hope enters. I'll get the band to come up here. We'll get ready to sing. But let me pray and lead us praying for God to revive and renew. And may it just be the start of a wave of prayers that we each begin to pray regularly so that we can be hungry for God to do in our time what He has done in the past. Let's pray. Father God, As we face this year, we have a lot of programs and things planned, and they're important. But Father God, we we want so much more, so much more than we've seen in the last five years at Bankstown, 10 years at SWEC, or the whole of our lives in churches, if we've been around churches that long. We want to see so much more. We want to see the kind of church that we read about in the book of Acts, in every period of revival and renewal. And we don't want to see it because it's just good for us and it's good to be on a wave and a ride. No, we want to see it because, Jesus, you deserve a church, a body that is like that in your world, that is hungry and desperate for hope. And comfortable Western Christians and churches are just not doing that. So we repent of our comfort, our Laodicean lukewarmness, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be poured out in our time, in our year, in revival proportions, for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's sing.